0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Doomer. (laughs) All right. Uh, Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Doomer Optimism. I'm Trace Crow, and I'll be hosting today. I am really proud and excited to have Julia Dakin on the show today. Um, Julia, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you came to be on the podcast?
1: Thank you. It's um, great to be here. So I have been a farmer, uh, like a small local market gardener, for most of most of my life. I did a few other things um, in the meantime, but really, farming has always been my passion. And. I went through this, you know long period of being worried about agriculture for all the reasons that everybody, all of your listeners know about, you know, our dependence on synthetic nitrogen, on fossil fuels in general, on plastics, on all those things. Um, so I was really searching for a way to farm without inputs. And I at some point I was involved in this farm where we had a draft horse, we did, organic no-till with this roller crimper where we are mechanically, uh, crushing the cover crop and then planting into that. And I, I guess you could say I had a lot of failure. I, I, it was hard. I mean, it's hard, it's hard exploring that. And especially cause it's all pretty expensive and whatever you sell is, is really cheap. So, um, I was just trying, you know, trying different things like, wait, what is the solution? And I I was really into soil and soil testing and sort of, you know, mineral nutrition. A lot of um, what they teach in regenerative ag is about soil, soil quality and compost and, and growing better food with higher quality soil. Um, but even through that journey, I was a little, you know, I, I just wasn't settled that I was doing the right thing because- even with soil testing, um, it's not something that is accessible to most of the world that's growing food. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do something um, in a way that was really only possible to people in certain countries. So I was on this journey, like, how? what is my role? I was into nutrient density and learning about what increases nutrient density. Uh, and, and part of that reason was that my dad died of cancer and there were other people dying around me and I was you know concerned about this general among among those other concerns that I had about sort of the the reduction in our food quality and so 2 years ago I read something that caused me to rethink everything that I knew And that was uh, in the dark of COVID winter. You know, everything was canceled and was raining and dark all winter. And so I read a report by the Bionutrient Food Association. And they have this fantastic ongoing survey they've been doing where farmers from all over the U.S. and, 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 and parts of Europe, too, would send in samples, food, Samples and also soil samples, along with the questionnaire, what are their farming practices are they irrigating adding compost, and then they would also send in grocery store samples. So they built this giant um, data set, and then you could compare the crop samples to the soil samples to the farming practices and try to look for patterns. And so the report I read was Well, their, their goal was to show that regenerative farming practices increase produce quality. And so that's why I read the report, right? I, I just wanted to know the details. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wanted to confirm kind of what I already knew. And um, they didn't find any patterns between soil quality and nutrient density over their thousands of samples. So there was no relationship between soil quality measures and things like antioxidants and phytonutrients in that data set. Since then, I've read more, so I have a broader perspective on it. Uh, And and that really caused me to, to worry, but I figured, well, I'm not that worried. I will download the data myself and find the patterns and then I'll just let them know if they missed anything. (laughs) So um, I did. And I spent a couple of weeks on it, you know, still dark winter. I got so involved in it that I, that I kind of stopped focusing on anything else in my life. My husband had to remind me to eat um, because it was really blowing my mind. Yeah, And it was challenging all these assumptions that I had beyond nutrient density, kind of, you hear so many truths in gardening and farming that you've heard all your life. Well, a lot of them aren't based on actual data. Mm. And okay. So, so my analysis of that data, you know, after exploring every possible thing that I could explore was that their conclusion was correct. There um, was no relationship between uh for example, minerals in the soil to minerals in the crop sample in, in the food sample. So, for example, the calcium levels in a tomato had no relationship to calcium levels in the soil. And I generally did not, as they did not, find any. Increase in quality for local and organic produce compared to grocery store produce. Now, I want to say that, of course, local and organic is better, right? It's better for all kinds of reasons, but in the narrow framework of nutrient density, there was no pattern of difference. So... Um, I did start finding patterns. And that was when I started sorting by variety. So you could have big differences, you know, something one head of lettuce could be 200 times higher in these ge- phytonutrients, antioxidants and minerals than another head of lettuce. And it was based on genetics. And that caused me to really feel like, okay, uh, you know, we might have a zero to 25% difference when you have better farming practices, but you could have a 20,000% difference if you switched varieties. 200 times is 20,000%. But we're not talking about it in in regenerative agriculture, and I don't know that we're talking about it in permaculture. We're talking about the 5% difference you can make. I mean, it's not a single number, okay? You could say 0 to 30% difference that you can make by... Um, adjusting your farming practices. Whereas, you know, the the genetic factor is the 98% difference that you can make, and we just ignore it. Mm. So that caused me to start really researching more in genetics and what has actually happened. And what actually happened is that our breeding practices have really focused on yield since the oh, the green revolution especially, and we've gotten really good at breeding crops for what we want. And that has sort of increased the trend of high yielding under high nutrient environments and things like shelf stability and all those other things that grocery stores and big money cares about. And is has no relationship or opposite relationship to flavor and nutrient density. So from there, I didn't know. I didn't know what the solution was. I, I thought heirlooms might be, do you want me to keep going?
0: Yeah, no, please. I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I'm jotting down some questions as we go along. <laughs> okay. I, I just kind of want to hear the whole scope, scope of the story before I interject.
1: Okay, so heirlooms sound like the answer, right? They haven't been damaged like everything else has. And so I thought briefly, maybe that was the answer for me, Um, but farmers don't tend to grow heirlooms because they tend to be lower yielding and and more um, susceptible to disease. And that is because they've been bred in really isolated populations. So even open pollinated sounds good, but it's open pollinated within a really narrow gene pool. And what people often don't know is that plants are more susceptible to inbreeding depression than animals are. So we have this mindset where we need to take care of these heirlooms, you know, consider like the brandy wine tomato, right, it's delicious. And it's probably really nutrient dense. And in that way, it hasn't been damaged by by breeders, but it has been in um, self pollinating for so long, that it's, it's lacking genetic diversity and I mean, in in my case, it's dead by the middle of summer. So you get a few good tomatoes and and then it's dead. So heirlooms really weren't the solution for me. And I didn't feel like they were the solution for um, a sustainable food system with actual food security. Mm. So at a certain point, I read this book just randomly, you know, I was just reading things just trying to find kind of my place in agriculture. And what do I do about all these problems that I can see and have no solution for? And I, at a certain point, I read land Gardening by Joseph Lofthouse, And that really was a, it was a mindset shift. I realized I'd been stuck in this, this, my choices, which I had thought were, you know, heirlooms, open pollinated, hybrids, sort of this mindset that I think we all have, which is part of just being in a first, you know, a country where companies have a lot of marketing sway. So um, that those are the the options that we hear about because we're buying seeds. Um, and so I realized that I had bigger choices and land races, you know, Joseph talks a lot about those are community selected, promiscuously pollinating and locally adapted mm-hmm. and, the that's maybe one definition the, the the better definition i think or different definition i should say is is they it's a mindset shift towards adapting the crop to a specific area and community over time instead of adapting the environment to your crop every year so as gardeners, we have this mindset shift where, or this mindset where we buy things and then we protect them because we have to in order to get a harvest. And and we don't think like, okay, we need to, we, that that we can have stronger plants that really are strong in our local area because they're adapted and they're diverse and we're selecting for the ones that do well and that we like. So So that was the mindset shift that got me started. And I realized, you know, I'd just been missing this whole factor of of that farmers and gardeners can really be in control of their food and their seed. And we've given up that control to industry.
0: Hmm. Well, talk a little bit about that. Uh, So what are some of the ways I know that on a previous, uh, we've had Joseph on a previous podcast, and I think these podcasts can be pretty close to one another. Um, so I don't want to I don't wanna steal his thunder (laughs) if this happens to be released first, but kind of describe a little bit like you know, your your the problem you were identifying was genetic diversity um in in crops. Um what makes land race so great for that? Kind of dive dive into that a little bit. So
1: in order to to strengthen some of, or or to be able to adapt something to your local conditions, you need to increase the diversity. And you can do that by um, making wide crosses. So instead of, you know, letting plants within a specific variety cross, you're finding two different varieties or five different or whatever it is and letting them naturally cross with each other so you're not controlling them like you would in a hybrid situation and that diversity gives you the they're a lot healthier cuz they're not inbred anymore and they're also like you can then select for the ones that aren't getting eaten by insects i mean that happens naturally just cuz they don't die um <laughs> you can save the seeds from those survivors and then braid the survivors with each other and then start selecting for what you like. So you're the favorite flavors.
0: Mm. That's really cool. So how much, so talk about going to seed Um, is the organization. Do you, did you start going to seed?
1: Yes. I, well, it is a collaborative effort. So yeah. after I read the book, I, Like, this is great, but I need more. I need need pictures and I need videos. (laughs) And if I'm a farmer, like, how exactly am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. So I told Joseph he should do an online course and then he didn't have one planned. So I realized I needed to go do that. So um, he and I worked together to build a video course. And then that attracted mostly through Joseph's network people that had read the book and that wanted to get involved and also felt like this was important work. And then from that pool of people, the most um, you know enthusiastic ones decided to start a, a nonprofit or a nonprofit project. Um, so we have a fiscal sponsor called Empowerment Works, and that's where Going to Seed started. It officially started in January, and since then. Or January of this year, um, but we already had kind of like you know this this group of people around this specific topic, so things got started pretty quickly. And we had a we had someone who, Anna who really um, spearheaded the seed exchange platform. And we have an online community that everyone's contributing to, so that's how it
0: got started. That is so cool. So I guess kind of talk about what uh, what's going to seeds mission? What are you, what, you know, how does that fit in with the land race concept and, and just like, how, how is it growing? What, you know, how, how can people get involved? What is your, you know, what are you doing today? What are you planning on doing uh, in a year from now? That kind of stuff.
1: Okay. So our mission is shifting agriculture towards adaptation, community and diversity. And (laughs) The best way to get involved and to start learning more is to go to our website, and then we have online courses. So wherever you are in the world, those are accessible to everyone, and um, those are all free now. Since we became a nonprofit, we we wanted to make sure that there were no barriers to people that could really benefit um, from this information, and, and hopefully there will be some people that want to donate to it. So. Yeah. Um, The same same idea with the seeds. So our seed project, if you're in the US or Canada, you have access to our seeds. And um, I think it's a really fantastic project because it's really unique. Okay, so here's how it works. If you're a gardener that's been growing this way, and we started it this year. So we've had a year of gathering people and some people had been already growing for several years in this way. You send in your seeds of what you're growing. And ideally those will be the, you know, the the tastiest and earliest and healthiest plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very diverse. So we have certain mixes where we don't want necessarily you to send in your seeds if your flower corn has crossed with your sweet corn. Or if your sweet peppers and hot peppers are crossed or if like, you know, there's certain things that that will cross that aren't always desirable. Um, There's some in the pepo squash family. We don't want anything that's crossed with the decorative gourd because of that potential bitter gene. Mm -hmm. So people sent in their seeds and then those got mixed by the seed stewards, the volunteers that we have. And each one of those had a species that they, you know, were most passionate about. So they would make their mixes in and make sure that there wasn't one single contributor that was dominating the mix and that all the seeds looked good. And then they put them in seed packets, sent them to a central location. And then those are what there's an online store now that Anna Myritz has built. And that's where you can order it. So it looks kind of like an online store with beautiful descriptions that all the seed stores did. So it's really been a decentralized volunteer project. And I think it's really, it has a lot of potential because each year when people are sending in their best, most flavorful, healthiest plants, there can be an improvement in that crop population every single year. Because there's a, there's a formula for adaptation. It's the genetic diversity of the starting population times the size of the population times the intensity of the selection pressure. So in our case, we have a lot of diversity from people growing in gardens all over there, you know, all over the country. And then um, their intensity selection pressure can be high because they can select, you know, their best tomato and send that in and that gets mixed with everyone else's best tomato. So, the, so it's, it's just a, um, a way that I think we can see improvements really quickly over time.
0: Yeah. It's like you're crowdsourcing uh, new uh, varieties in a way. Like you're, it's kind of, it's very interesting. Um, It's kind of like new and old simultaneously.
1: Yeah. Right. The power of the mail and the internet and, (laughs) (laughs) and people everywhere. Yeah. So it's, it is crowdsourcing or um, it's like an open source project. I'm not that I know much about open sourcing, but you're iterating on everybody else's work every single year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, so I was I was checking out the store before the we recorded. Uh and you're right, the 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 um the descriptions are are adorable. And also like I was just really fascinated by like just how unusual some of the pictures were, you know, just like the the way the seeds look and the different varieties you have. What are you mentioned um your your the seed volunteers are passionate about certain species i uh, i have to ask what what species are you passionate about like right now like what are what are you just obsessing about
1: for the last few years i've been obsessing about potatoes so i have a potato breeding project and i grow from true potato seed and it's been really exciting to see the colors and the shapes and just just really fun. So I'm selecting for a potato population that's really mixed and that has a lot of purple, pink, red, and like yellow, golden colors all Mm. mixed together.
0: Right on, right on. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I actually had a bunch of, um, like a bunch of potatoes that had gone bad and I just sort of threw them in the ground out front to see what happens. Um, or not gone bad. I mean, just, they, they'd gotten eyes all over them. We'll see. I've never grown potatoes before. I'm sure it'll be a, a total failure, but um, I I have so much fun gardening that d- even the failures are fun. It doesn't really well, matter to me.
1: <laughs> You should look for the berries. So I'm assuming what you're throwing out there are tubers,
0: yeah.
1: and yeah. that's great. But um, as far as, like, adapting or being able to select for what you want, there are clones of their parents, so you want to see if they'll produce berries and then plant those.
0: Oh, Okay.
1: A lot yeah. of potatoes can't anymore. They have lost their ability to produce berries that ripen.
0: I didn't even know that they ha- they could produce berries.
1: Yeah, That's- you'll have to take the online course.
0: Yeah, no, I'm definitely <laughs> going to. I was like that. T- well, tell tell us a little bit about the course. Um, it's free to take. How long does it last? It's and um, what kind of things would people learn in it?
1: It's self-paced, so it was developed over the last year, mostly um, of Joseph in Joseph's garden. And then he had a a crop failure because Utah had a big drought. So he came to my farm, and then we filmed the second part in my garden. And what I really wanted after reading the book was a lot of plants and Joseph with the plants and, like, really following him around to see – what exactly he sees so that we could learn to like have the same powers of observation so um you will see a lot of those videos of actual plant footage and then more of you know access to, to resources recommendations on where to find seeds crops to start with and then there's some interviews uh from other people that are growing in this way and then I have a I wrote a chapter and I did a video on nutrient density and beyond, you know, what I've learned since that is this is more than just genetics, but really the details if you're growing for nutrient density. So there's a lot of in-depth stuff. And if you have read the book, some of it of that information is obviously, because Joseph is a lot in both. Um, But there's also quite a bit of other stuff. So it's pretty long. I think there's 52 lessons now. And, you should be able to learn everything you need to know to get started and feel comfortable with getting started. That was my goal. And to really pick the crops that you want to do, or maybe you want to grow everything this style. Um, But it really gives you some, some pointers, some details on different species, what species are hard and what species are easy. And then there's also an online community where people can gather and ask questions and chat with each other and show photos and the community information is in it's on the website but it's also in the course because the idea is that the community is for people that have taken the course and are practicing these methods and aren't there just to answer questions that we've already answered
0: yeah what uh i mean that's got to be pretty exciting to to be having this kind of nationwide, or I guess it's sort of international, right? Because you have you have people from Canada interested in this as well. It must be pretty exciting to, to see that kind of community growing uh, around soil and seeds and genetic diversity and like really kind of a, attacking the ag problem from the gr- grassroots. Um, what, what's that been like seeing that over the last couple of years of of the work that you've done?
1: Yeah, it's been really fun. And there were times when I was building the course and I spent, you know, I it was self-funded and I was worried that I was just wasting my time and then people wouldn't like it. <laughs> it's like putting yourself out there. You know, people really were into Joseph's book, but what if they didn't like this version of it? Mm-hmm. Um, And also just people love heirlooms and They don't necessarily want that adventure, or I was worried that they wouldn't want that adventure of diversity in their garden. But at this point, I'm not worried anymore. (laughs) So there are enough people that have really said this has changed my life and why didn't I know this sooner and so obvious now. So I have had enough of that feedback to know that it's it's important and people value it and now it's a matter of of the next phase of
0: growing wow. what um what do you see is there a commonality in your in your community it, it, are most people like home gardeners are they homesteaders are they actually trying to do larger larger you know acreage uh or or is it just all over the place
1: it's mostly gardeners and homesteaders growing for their own personal food. There are some farmers and we'd like to add more farmers. I mean, in our mission statement, it's shifting agriculture. Well, we can't do that without farmers, but there's a gap in that um, farmers really need to be able to sell what they're growing and consumers won't necessarily want that diversity. So, we have really marketed to gardeners. And right now we're applying for grants. We're working on a farmer program that will support let us support farmers in that first year where maybe, you know, they're learning or they don't have a consistent product. But over time, especially as our seeds improve, as we have more specialized mixes, as more people just, we have more data, we want to expand into bigger scale. I mean, it'll never be big. There's a reason that people that large scale farmers only use hybrids uh they can't deal with that diversity but i think that a lot of small farmers growing for their local markets or csas you know can they do have some customers that will really support that and value the diversity
0: yeah i i think that you you know you're going to see that that market that piece of the market continue to grow um over time um and you know i, I mean you know, industrial agriculture, you know, it's sort of, we're sort of like stuck, right? We're stuck to that yoke for right now because Mm -hmm. um, we just, there's just such a gigantic gap between the amount of food that needs to be produced to feed everybody, the number of people actually engaged in food production, right? Like, Mm -hmm. So it's not like suddenly it's going to be small scale everywhere, right? But I do think that the sheer volume of homesteaders and people going and getting into even hobbyist farming, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is going to open up the opportunities for more local regional food networks, or at least the beginnings of those. Um, And I think that's where, where the diversity is really going to make, you know, it'll pay off both from the farmer's perspective. And then also the consumer will be more interested in that kind of product. Um, At least, I mean, at least that's my hope. I, I, I just think with, um industrial agriculture coming under so much pressure from so many different angles um not i mean not just social social pressure and cultural pressure but also increasingly like input pressure right like just the cost or ability to do it the way they're doing it um you know in a way it's almost like small-scale agriculture we need it in place so there's some sort of buffer if if yields start to collapse Um, over time or or fairly rapidly. Um, Yeah.
1: And this unpredictable weather that we've been seeing with earlier, later frosts and flooding, it's like a lot of these varieties that we buy are really susceptible to mm -hmm. any kind of change. And so having more resilient plants that are more adapted to stressful situations will really help with that problem too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. What other kind of... um... Well, how, I, let me, let me kind of take it in the in a slightly different direction. Let's, let's go further back. Um, what's your background? Like, how did you get into, into this in the first place? Uh, Cause it sounds like you've been, you know, for me, I didn't really start thinking about growing food or growing things at all until about like three or four years ago. It really wasn't on my radar. Um, but it sounds like you've been doing this for much longer than that.
1: Yeah, I wanted to drop out of school when I was 10 years old and just do farming. That's awesome. (laughs) We had a garden growing up. um, And then I went to high school. I went to a boarding school on a farm. And there I worked in the farm quite a bit. So I've always been in agriculture. And I I, um, was working for a few years on a cattle ranch and with goats. And so in different ways, but sort of the the food production has always been there for me. I had to take a few years to do something else. Um, but luckily I came back to agriculture and yeah. So I, and that was part of my problem when I had this, like, what am I going to do with my life? Because everything I have been doing has been wrong. um. But I knew that I was always going to be working in agriculture.
0: Yeah. And uh this may seem like a dumb question but i assume like you know the land race technique the genetic diversity the way y- y'all are are operating with the seeds i i assume that's compatible with permaculture or various other garden designs like that doesn't really have much of anything to do with the success of the seeds No
1: i mean i think it really is a a layer on top of whatever someone is doing. So permaculture is perfect where you can really, you know, be more interdependent, less dependent on buying things. You know, people don't want to be buying fertilizer or buying remay or like crop protection, anything or plastics. So this is all about low inputs farming with what you have and adapting to whatever it is that you're doing and what your soil is like. So I think it's really compatible with permaculture and I would love to figure out how to integrate it more.
0: Yeah, I would think that, you know, given the given the emphasis on like, you know, biological diversity and ecosystem diversity that is you know, inherent to permaculture, I would assume that, you know, interspecies diversity would also. I mean, it's a, it's a it's much more intensive in that you're paying attention to the plant life, you're paying attention to the ecosystem to a much greater degree than you would be just trying to get rows of the same bright red tomatoes, right, of the same approximate right. size so that Kroger will accept them, you know. Um, yeah,
1: or- well, let me ask you, like, how, what percentage of permaculture people um, are saving seeds? I assume it's a lot higher than than gardeners, but what would you say?
0: I would think I would think most of them. I mean, I, I think like when you really take that to heart, right? It's that kind of closed system of you you trying to find a way. And the longer you do it, right, the more you start tinkering around the edges of virtually every part of the system. Um, I would think that virtually everyone would eventually come to keeping seeds, messing around with genetic diversity, breeding plants, just seeing what you can get, get away with, right? On your on your property.
1: Mm-hmm. And the big benefit. To um, to this way of saving seeds is that you know the conventional seed saving wisdom says you must have ten plants of a specific variety in order to maintain your or avoid inbreeding depression, and who wants to garden like that? I mean, maybe if and then and then have the separation distances between another variety. Well, that's not a garden friendly scenario. Mm-hmm. So with this method, is like you can have two squash as long as they're different you're good to go. I mean, ideally you might have a few more so you can select the best, but really you don't. That's enough diversity right there. And a lot of people don't grow corn, for example, because, or for seed, because they can't have a big enough minimum population size. So you're supposed to grow 200 plants. Well, the reason is, is because you want to have a big enough gene pool, avoid inbreeding depression. But if, you, it's all the same variety, so that's why you need so many, and you're still not avoiding it. I mean, the, there are 200 plants that are very, very closely related. So, when, when you have more diversity, you can get away with, say, like having 15 plants, and they're diverse enough so that you will, won't have that in braiding depression. So, that is another really cool thing about you know small scale people and the potential for if we can release our attachment to specific varieties then we can be really successful in adapting to challenging conditions
0: yeah that's really interesting i i I, um i've started to pay a lot more attention to seeds but i'm like you know i mean i won't even pretend i'm sixteenth of where you're at i just i've just started to pay more attention to it you know um and um I'm kind of wanting to like move beyond what I can get at, you know, the normal places, you know, it just seems like I'm, especially when it comes to like wildflowers. So for me, I'm I'm like trying to turn my property into more of like a pollinator, like nature reserve kind of world. Um, I have some edibles, but that's not really the main focus of what I'm growing. So I get like very into like, you know, like volunteer species that'll just land, you know, and take seed out. Like, um, I got a bunch of blue mist flowers last year and I cut the flowers and hung them upside down in my greenhouse and just dried mm-hmm. out. Um, Cause you're not going to find blue mist flower seeds. Like it's most people consider would consider it a weed, right? Like it's just a, a Georgia native. It's a wildflower that just pops up. Um, but I love the look of it and I have several spaces. I'd love to pollinate with more of them. So uh, or populate with more of them. Um, so I've just been really fascinated by like what for me it's been like what is a weed and what's not a weed right and like how can we start to diversify the garden so that it it looks like a more natural space instead of just rows and and um you know the same kind of crops over and over so
1: so have you considered taking some seed from your established gardens and seeding your newer ones <clears throat>
0: Kind of. I don't have much established though. I'm going to be honest. I, 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 this is sort of, this project really started last year. And by the time I got really like into it, um, a lot of the plants I planted last year, the perennials, like they just didn't have very much growing time. So like, this is really the first season where I'm starting to see all these perennials come back up. Um, and I'm going to be very curious about what I can, what I can make happen. (laughs) Cool. Once everything's up and, and running.
1: So what's your long-term outlook for for Roots Down? What does it look like in 10 years and given ideal scenario?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, Roots Down's real goal is, it's funny because you were saying you wanted to shift the direction of agriculture. And for the longest time, our our actual like tag phrase was shifting the paradigm of landscaping. Um, And that's really our goal. You know, the landscaping industry is um, very ecologically destructive but it also comes with a host of social um problems it's also not particularly fiscally responsible given that you're just spending a lot of money and time uh mowing grass that doesn't need to be there in the first place um so our real goal is to just you know slowly get the landscaping industry to kind of nudge get five percent better than ten percent better and then you know once there's more people with a diversity of, t- of yard types, right? Um, I think that people will start to realize that getting rid of your lawn doesn't necessarily mean that it's a wildflower meadow or that it looks crazy, right? Some people want that aesthetic. I definitely like that kind of English cottage core, like flowers everywhere kind of look. That's really what I'm going for, but not everyone wants that. I mean, you can find you can build ecosystems that look a little more uniform still incorporate a, uh, an area of grass um it's about how it's being maintained it's about the inputs that are going into it um and so I'm really hoping over time Roots down can start to shift that narrative so that people can start to accept that um you know lawns can be good for things like football fields and soccer fields and sometimes it's they're nice to have a green space where people can lay their blankets down um but we have 50 million acres of it in this country and we probably only need about 10 million acres when all is said and done. Um, so our goal is really to kind of, you know, slowly shift the landscaping industry. Um, in 10 years I would hope that we would have a, a lot of clients I would hope that we would be nationwide. So we're starting here in the southeast in Georgia. Um, because that's where we are, you know, like, we're, <laughs> that's where our seed landed so we're growing here first but. Um, we're really hoping to take it nationwide, especially with our certification business, with helping developers, HOAs, property managers, the, you know, those types of landowners to understand how they can save money, do better for the environment by shifting their portfolio, their landscaping portfolio, and how the, how it's maintained. In fact, mm. probably more beneficial is how it's maintained than how it's planted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but- It's really cool, there's a lot of similarities where you're shifting landscaping, we're trying to shift agriculture and we're up against so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, landscaping, you know, uh, there is actually a whole lot of similarities is that, you know, landscaping industry at this point like is mostly dominated by a few very large national firms. But even when you get into a region, it's still going to be dominated by about 10 or 15 large regional firms right um but there's a million and a half landscapers out there and i think something like 75% of them are work for a company with less than 5 employees so it's like it's a very scattered very grassroots um industry uh and so there's not really like a you know one big or you can switch and then we did it right like it's like no you're going to have to go city by city town by town and talk to the county governments talk to the city governments talk to the local developers and the landscapers um because there's very regional differences uh obviously when it comes to actual like plant palettes and designs right the local uh conditions can vary wildly across this country um and so, um, yeah, it's a unique, it's a unique challenge. So I can very much, uh, I can very much relate and empathize with the kind of challenge you're facing is that big established industries have a way of doing it. It's almost like a a religion of like, this is the way it, it should be done. Um, and as long as you just don't pay attention to the, that mounting pile of negative externalities over there. Right. Right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I'm, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's also like, that's where the opportunity is, right? Like this, um, you know, one way or another, the global economy has to like, kind of turn over to a more regenerative mindset, or we're going to face all sorts of really catastrophic problems as a species. So, you know, my MBA brain is going, Hmm, that sounds like a huge business opportunity. If Every industry has to find a way to be regenerative. You're talking about, a a business opportunity on the scale of like the digital revolution, right? Like Mm -hmm. every process has to be rethought every uh, product and the way we do things in every industry has to be rethought. Um, And, you know, 99.5% of business people aren't thinking about any of these things, not in the kind of way that you need to be, you know, they're thinking maybe sustainability, but we sort of moved past sustainability. Sustainability isn't sustainable anymore. We really need to be putting things back, better than we found them, um, or we're just going to sustain ourselves off a cliff.
1: So how much do you think for any industry working in this space, is it political? Is it more effective to work on politicians or the ultimate consumers? Like for you, those homeowners, or for me, those buyers, like where's that lever point?
0: I I mean, I personally, I believe that the source of power in the United States is the county and city governments. Now, the reason why uh, big money and large organizations rarely think about it that way is because it's a very large, diversified, it's very difficult to, to scale a business that's focusing on city and local government, right? Because every government's different. They all have different purchasing. Um, you know requirements. There, you know, there are different requ- levels of political um, sort of education that has to go on, right, to to start to change things. Um, but when you look at the county governments, they have large budgets. They actually have quite a lot, a lot of of power and influence and wealth. Um, in any given area, right, the city and local governments are likely to be the largest landowners, the largest single landowners, right. Um, and they have, they're the ones also paying all the ne- negative extra ta- externalities, right? So if the waterways are getting poisoned or, uh, or um, you know, or they're having a lot of erosion issues or the roads are cracking because they have so much water on them, it is the cities and county governments that have to pay for that, right? So there is no buck they get to pass it to. They have to deal with it. And so the f- the financial argument becomes easier to make with them of just being like, listen, like this is not just the better way to do it for your residents, but it's also a better way to do it for the sustainability of your budget. Um, and um, so I think just their 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 ability to influence an area, the sheer volume of land they have uh, at their disposal, as well as the fiscal argument makes really county and city governments, I think, are where the, a lot of the change is gonna happen. The positive change, um, don't get me wrong, the federal and state governments are gonna try their, darndest to make large change but i in my view state and federal government uh, officials are really like too um they're too beholden to the large corporate interests like they're they're they think of things at scale they don't think of things as being locally applicable so you know their sense of economic growth is going to be bringing another dollar general to your town, right? Where the local people are going to say, no, we'd like a, a we'd rather have a local food co-op, or we'd have a, a daily farmer's market instead of a weekly one or a monthly one, you know, they'd have different solutions at the local level than the state and, and federal level is going to have, certainly that the the global level is going to have, you know, because mm-hmm. for gigantic solutions.
1: Interesting. I was thinking, it was more driven by consumer demand for like individual yards or whatever. But what yeah, you're saying I mean, makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is. But I, I consumer demand is weird because what I found in landscaping is is that the homeowners say, well, this is what I thought. I mean, this is what my I think my neighbors want me to have, right? Oh. So the yard I want my neighbors want me to have. And the landscapers saying, well, this is just what the homeowners ask for, right? And the developers are saying, well, this is what the city asked me to input. And the city's saying, well, I thought this is what we had to do uh to raise housing prices. You know, like and everyone, no one is taking responsibility for this collective decision we've made as a society. And I think a lot of industries are similar to that. Um, you know, uh, in that you kind of just need to like throw yourself in the machine, you know, and just stop the gears for a second and get people to start thinking about these things differently because it's not really true anymore that homeowners prefer lawns. Um, In fact, the under 45 set is much, much, much more likely to buy a home because it has an established garden or established fruit trees than I think it's something like 75% more likely than uh, boomer homeowners. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is a preference that is not really revealing itself because or it's revealing itself by all these, you know, millennials buying their homes and then tearing up a portion of their yard and putting in a pollinator garden. Right. Um, And so these these preferences are kind of revealing themselves that way. Um, But it hasn't quite moved up the the power chain. Right. Mm -hmm. We're starting to realize like, oh, wow, I could make a lot more money uh, if I just install the landscape differently. Right. And hire a different landscaping company to maintain those, those public areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I kind of feel like agriculture is heading towards a similar inflection point in that the argument has always been, this is the cheapest way to do volume. Right. Uh, and we can get the most tomatoes for the lowest dollar amount. Um and that is you know sort of G- gdp brain right like the sense that like this volume is the number that matters right um but i'm not sure that that's going to map going to be the case and also i'm not sure that the way that they're doing industrial farming will always be the cheapest way to do it i mm-hmm. think those inputs are going to when when they come back to bite them they're going to it's going to bite hard and swiftly right mm-hmm. um and they and won't, at
1: that point, there won't be the seeds that they need to switch to is one problem yeah. on a large scale. So
0: yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the differences you're talking about here, right, the differences in, in viewpoints of the way you view land and food production are so stark that it's not going to be an easy transition from one mm-hmm. to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I personally, you know, my personal view is that in a lot of these cases, the the inputs, just the cost of inputs. Um, Anything that's this reliant on fossil fuels is is just walking a very thin line that at any point that line could snap, you know, and you just don't know when it's going to happen. And and when it comes to food production, they're risking a whole lot of people's lives on this kind of bet that we'll be able to keep this going forever, um, despite virtually all input suggesting that's not the case from topsoil to um you know the fertilizers that you mentioned at the top of the the podcast um the fossil fuel inputs the labor demands right or the ability to continue to um create um
1: pesticides
0: well no mechanical i was thinking mechanical Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. ways of getting rid of the need for people right Mm -hmm. um it's almost like they're just they're going to go headlong into standardization to the the whatever end that is. Um, But I think diversity is really actually more the the way forward.
1: Yeah. And also that mindset shift has become more of um, more, you know, obvious to me that first of all, we need to change our minds uh, and the rest of it can come. But without that, we're kind of stuck.
0: Yeah. What have you seen? Um, You're in California, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What have you seen um, in particular from like farmers, you know, and the farmers that you talked to through the years, um, what What are the, I mean, is it just sheer size, like corporate size um, of the industry that, that makes it hard, that that's kind of the headwind you're facing?
1: In my area, we don't have these bigger farms. I'm on the coast, okay. Northern California. And from the farmers around me, it's sort of like a hesitant interest and not quite there yet of implementing. And I think that's the, you know, farmers need to be conservative because they need to be able to sell their crop. They need to know what they're going to get. And, you know, it's kind of a gamble when you, so I'm growing this squash that is all really delicious. It's been selected for deliciousness every single year for the last nine years by joseph lofthouse and they're beautiful and they all look very different and it's just that what i've heard from farmers i've done a few surveys is that their customers just really want to to know exactly what they're going to get and they want one of like three squash varieties. Mm-hmm. So I think that has been the overriding concern with farmers is that the customers won't want to buy them. And what what Joseph Joseph's experience was positive, but it took a leap of faith is that he just started growing this way and his customers learned that whatever he grew was delicious. And so they would, you know, trust that and select his produce out above others that takes there's a gap there of like getting there being knowing that you're gonna have that flavor mm-hmm. increase and then your customer teaching your customers to understand that so so there are you know a few hurdles to get through when you're when you're growing for a market but for the csa farmers and for the farmers that have a local reputation i i think it's a much smaller gap mm-hmm. And else, also for chefs, farmers that have relationships with people that, you know, are looking for that diversity and looking for that better flavor, there's really an opportunity there. Cause the farm the 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 seeds that a lot of people buy, there's they're from Johnny's or they're from high mowing seeds and and sometimes they are pretty similar to each other or, or those companies have the same original source. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing something different, you could have an edge with a chef that's looking for something different, but you know, there are those farms would need to be really located in the right places with the right relationships. So, so this will take time to get there. And I think it'll be a, a like a consumer educational project, a gardener empowerment project sort of, um, incentivizing farmers, teaching people the benefits of what they could get with with seed saving and with local adaptation. Like, you know, they're not going to get crop failures if they if they do normally by growing something. Um, So in some cases people just don't grow a crop because they don't do well in that area. Well that person would have more incentive to try this because Mm -hmm they could be the only ones around that could grow melons. That's what I'm doing in my local community is we want we have really cold summers. And so I have a local community group that we're, we're collaborating around a seed saving project of melons, butternuts, and sweet corn that don't normally grow here. And everyone's really excited about the potential to like grow melons without a greenhouse. So I think there's different ways we can kind of like make inroads but it's not going to be so fast
0: yeah yeah I mean because it really is uh, you know you kind of hit on it I think it is an education thing you know is that um there is a you know I mean there's this sort of supermarket mentality right like you're you're looking for a squash so you're expecting it to be yellow same shape you know straight neck um and uh you're you don't know really know you think you know what you're gonna get. Right. But of course, the the flavor of squash has changed over time. Right. It's not the same squash I was eating when I was a kid, Um, but it's been a little bit like, uh, you know, frog in in uh, boiling water kind of thing, where it's just Mm -hmm. slowly changed year over year. Um, How what I really like your. uh, Excuse me, as far as an education vector. Right. I like that you mentioned chefs or just the food preparers, I guess. Uh, what kind of outreach are y'all doing to them? Um, or what kind of response have you seen from them? Because I would think color variety, right, and and flavor variety would be the things that would be like really, really uh, lights out for that particular group.
1: So I don't have much to report on that topic. Um, Dan Barber is probably one of the most famous chefs. He's a friend of Joseph Lofthouse. So I'm hoping that we can do more with that market, just maybe having Dan as a consultant of how to get there. Um, and we are planning to talk to various chefs, but everything's really new, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. I've been, I have a couple of other projects, and I, I feel like one of one of the ways that we've had the most, I don't know what you call it, market traction. Market product market fit, is on organizing local communities. So that's, um, you know, I've done a couple presentations and then workshops, and it's getting communities together to work on a local project, like I mentioned, the melons. Um, So it feels like, you know, those things, those projects that we're doing in that regard and our farmer projects, they might come first. And we're just lacking resources at this point to really expand in the ways that we should. We, I don't have a nonprofit background. I have some farming and business background, but I shouldn't be an executive director. Honestly, (laughs) I have never done fundraising before and I'm not good at it and I hate asking for money. Um, So that's one reason why we, everything's volunteer we're not paying anybody in that probably to get where we need to go we're going to need to get better at finding the grants and the and the donors um and asking just our constituents to to support our project so so yeah that's a another room for opportunity
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that can be hard that can be hard um you know you don't often you know, you get into these types of projects and the goal is not to get really wealthy or, or you know, you're in it because you're interested in the, in the project itself and want it to grow. Um, but unfortunately, you know, money is how things, is one of the ways things grow, right? Um, you can, more resources, the more you can do. And um, so, um, well, I don't have a problem asking on your behalf. So anyone who's listening to this, Go uh, check out Going to Seed and um, do the free courses and donate a little bit of money so they can do more of this good work. Um, why don't we, uh, I think that we we can probably finish here. Why don't you kind of talk about, like, is there anything I missed, anything that you'd like to kind of, uh, something, a topic you'd like to end on?
1: You know, I can't think of anything. Do you have another question?
0: Well, actually, I'm, I, I am interested in your, you are on a farm yourself, right? How, how much acreage do you have?
1: It's very small, but actually there is another a topic that I should okay. have thought about. Um, and that is my next project. It's an uh, online course based in southern Mexico, because one thing, you know, this this method of of increasing diversity, a- adapting to local conditions is something that, uh, you know, our great grandparents used to do. But a lot of indigenous communities, that's how they farm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we try to reinvent the wheel. And though my introduction of it was Joseph in this book, it shouldn't have been right. It shouldn't have been. This is this is common method of farming around the world. So I decided to learn from the people who are, you know, have are still doing it because they've never stopped doing it. They still have their relationships with their traditional land races, the intergenerational ones. Um, So that's something that is going to be released in the next couple of months that I'm really excited about. And I, and I'm excited to collaborate with these, these people in Mexico, because it's a different, you know, we've, we're exploring the different ways of thinking and the philosophies behind polycultures. And I think uh permaculture people will be really into it. There's a lot of polyculture talk specifics on what mm-hmm. goes into these Mexican milpas and the polycultures and why or why not.
0: So have you been traveling to Mexico to do this?
1: I have sort of, but in my first trip, I realized that I shouldn't be behind the camera because creates an awkward situation and I have two people that have been set up with cameras and they are taking videos in their communities and then they have access, you know, the, they own the content. And so we're collaborating on like translating it and making it available for English speakers. Um, but I don't do much except editing. I really want it to be in their voices.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. When and uh so later on this year people can expect that course?
1: It, this the translation of it has taken a lot of time. So I keep saying, like, oh, in a month, you know, and two weeks ago, I said two weeks ago. So right now I don't want to commit, but it should be within the next two months.
0: Is there somewhere people can find out more information about it, or is there a wait list or anything like that?
1: So if you go to Take the course that existing courses. There's a course page on going to seed, and um, there's a description of that course. And I don't think you can like pre-buy it at this point. But if you sign up for the other one, then you'll be kept in the loop. Perfect, perfect. And we have a monthly newsletter, or something with updates and projects we're working on. And there's the online community, and all of that is is um, once you get some seeds or once you. Get the course, you can like click on the keep me updated.
0: Excellent. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a lovely conversation. Um, and I hope it'll be a nice addendum to to Joseph's uh uh podcast as well, and um really kind of get people looking into the land race gardening and and uh going to seed.
1: Well, thank you so much. That was really fun.